photo is about to come up on the screen. We'll just go to the next slide. There we go. Anyone recognize that man? Maybe not. You might have seen him in a, uh, in a newspaper article. Or it may, bit, certainly a bit before my time. Maybe a bit before yours. Uh, this man is Hiro Onoda. If I say the name, does anyone, does that ring a bell? Hiro Onoda? Onoda? I'm probably saying it wrong anyway, I'm sorry. He was a Japanese soldier sent in the Second World War to fight with his brigade on the Philippine island of Lubang. And early on, his group, his cell, was separated from the rest of the brigade. And when the island was eventually occupied by Allied forces, uh, his brigade, uh, realizing they could never just stand and fight, they fled and they ran up into the jungle. They began what we would call guerrilla warfare. A couple of years passed, and of course the war ended. But Inoda and his cell, they stayed hiding in the jungle. Planes flew over the island to drop leaflets, saying, the war is over, come down from the mountain, come out of the jungle. But Anoda thought it was just a ruse to reveal his location, and so he remained where he was. Letters and photos from his relatives were dropped, and he still stayed. Newspapers were left on the edge of the jungle perimeter in the hopes that when they came down to raid the villages, they would see one of the papers, they would realize the war was over. But still, in order, he wouldn't believe it. His band of soldiers, they would go down, they would raid the villages for food, and the villagers would cry out to them, the war is over. You can put down your weapons. You can go back and be with your families. You can stop fighting. They wouldn't listen. And 27 years after the war ended, Inoda's last remaining brother-in-arms, as it were, died. And two years... After that, a, a traveler who was aware of an order's situation, he, he made his way to the island of Lubang, and he brought with him an order's ex-commanding officer. And they found him eventually in the jungle after days of searching, and an order's ex-commanding officer confronted him, explained the truth, how the war had ended 29 years earlier. And as the reality sank in, Inoda just sat and wept bitterly. All these years he had been hiding in the jungle, fighting a war already won. And he could have enjoyed freedom back home with his loved ones. Well, the Galatians are in danger of forfeiting their freedom. Uh, In this letter that we've been working through in Galatians, Paul's been pleading with them to come to their senses. God had first brought them to faith in his son before through Paul's ministry. And they had delighted in that good news. That though we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God in our own efforts, in the slavery of sin, God has done everything required to make us right with him. In his son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to deal with our every sin and make us splendid before God, by his blood. But now the Galatians are starting to delight in a different message, a message of self-salvation. You can bring something to the table in your standing before God. 
in your worthiness before him. And of course, as we saw back in chapter 1, that is no gospel at all. A deadly lie encouraging the Galatians to return to the misery of trying to get right with God by what we do. Like an odor. Despite being told, the war's over, you're free, come out of the jungle. No, he insisted on enslaving himself to laboring, fighting for his freedom, which had already been won. Paul pleads with the Galatians here not to do the same. His first plea, don't forsake your freedom. Don't forsake your freedom. We'll look in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. I wonder if someone were to ask you to summarize the Christian life in just one word, would freedom be high up on the list? Does freedom accurately describe your relationship with God? Do you identify with that? Or is your relationship with him each day, does it feel more like a burden? No joy, no peace, just a hard mountain to climb with no end in sight. You're weighed down as you remember all the ways that you have failed to honor him rightly in the past weeks or months. A heavy heart full of regret, sorrow. Well, friends, if you're feeling that way today as a Christian, we, you desperately need to be reminded of why Jesus came. Jesus came not to give us more religion. Jesus came not to give us more rules, to pile on heavy burdens. He came, as Paul says, to bring us freedom. Freedom. Paul said back in Galatians 4 verse 3 that the Galatians, like many today, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, the the drudgery of trying to please the God that they claim to know through sacrifices and festivals and dietary requirements, doing all these things and never knowing if enough was enough. Uh, No security, just a constant fear that they had to do more and more and more or they would never see heaven. And now the Galatians are falling for that same trap again. They're enslaving themselves to fear and insecurity. Only only the religious habits that they're adopting this time, it's not their former pagan ways. Have a look in the rest of verse 1, verse 1b. what Paul says. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the word yoke there, well, that was a common expression for the idea that you had to keep all of the obligations of the Jewish law, the law that God gave his people back in the Old Testament, God's law for for Israel. We, We read a part of it in Leviticus earlier. And yet even though those rules were given by God to his people at one time, they are found in the Scriptures. Now Paul says, well, you Galatians, if you go back to that law and you adopt that as a security to become more worthy in God's sight you're actually going backwards. That religion based on God's law is no better than your former pagan ways. Because whether it's pagan rule-keeping or Bible rule-keeping, it's still the same problem. It's us 
trying in our pride and self-righteousness to justify ourselves before God. And by doing so, we forsake the only hope we have for life, real life, with him. See what Paul says in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, Paul didn't have a problem with circumcision in and of itself. He had his fellow colleague, Timothy, circumcised to help him share Christ with his fellow Jews. Paul wasn't against circumcision in all circumstances. I know some have their children circumcised today uh, for, for health reasons. That's fine. But Paul rightly condemned the practice of circumcision when it was done as part of keeping the law to get right with God. You're receiving the sign of circumcision like Israel before as those under law, because to accept it with that motivation was so foolish. You're no longer relying on the righteousness that Jesus alone has purchased for you at the cross. You're no longer recognizing him as the one law keeper, the only hope you've ever had to wash you clean of your every sin by his blood. Rather, you're abandoning him. And you're looking to what you can do with your own hands. And Paul says, if you do that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You it's, It's as if we are drowning in the Pacific Ocean. And a lifeboat comes along, and they haul us in. And as soon as we can, we dive back into the water again. Oh, don't worry, guys. I'm going to swim it. It's only 3,000 miles. I'll leave the advantage of life in the boat, thanks very much. I'm going to have a go myself. Because if your right standing with God has anything to do with keeping his rules, how well you obey those rules, if that's all you have to rely on before him, then it is on you. The law, all of it. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. That was actually written into the law itself. Just flick back to Galatians 3 verse 10. Paul quotes the law from Deuteronomy. See what he says in Galatians 3 verse 10. As cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All things written in the book of the law. Back in school, we had a program called the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Now, if you're from the UK and you grew up in that schooling system, you'll have heard of it. And to achieve this sort of extracurricular uh, award, you had to complete four tasks. You had to learn a musical instrument. You had to do some community service. You had to play a sport. And you had to go on an expedition. And it was that last goal that got all of us guys at school really excited. The the expedition part. A two-day, 40-kilometer hike through the English countryside, your tent and supplies on your back, going back to nature, having great fun with our schoolmates, reading maps, pretending we're Indiana Jones. And most of the guys, like me, we just signed up to go and have some fun in the English countryside. That's why we did it. But then there were the other areas. 
especially for me, having to learn a musical instrument. I am very thankful for the musicians that we have here at Smack One. And I know I could never be one of them. I tried to learn trumpet. I was absolutely hopeless at it. I didn't practice. I didn't put the hours in. And so although I passed the expedition with with flying colors, I failed the award because I can't play a trumpet to save my life. I couldn't meet all the requirements. Well, for the Galatians, circumcision in of itself, it's easy in one... I mean, it's painful, but it's easy in one sense. It's not hard to achieve. It's over in a moment. But the law-keeping that it represented, that would be impossible for us in our sin, just as it was for Israel in her sin. With hearts that were turned away from God, that did not seek him, the law did nothing but expose the reality of their condition. Oh, we might think we're doing well in some areas, but to keep the law, well, that means loving God from the heart, with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength, and loving one another as ourselves in every thought and word and deed. Everything we think, say, and do. Only one person has ever done that. Jesus, who fulfilled the law for us in our place so that we can escape the penalty for breaking it. It was laid on him that by faith in his blood we might go free. Friends, do you see what Paul is actually saying here? You cannot trust in Jesus and yourself before God. The two are just mutually exclusive. It's either his righteousness or the one that you are trying to achieve. You can't have both. So, verse 4, Paul has some very hard words for those trusting in the law. You are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. See, the Galatians thought that by adopting God's law, having trusted in Christ, they 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 were now drawing nearer to God. Actually, no, they're falling away from him. And for those who kept on going down that road to destruction, it would show that they never really knew Christ in the first place. Because to know Christ means accepting him for who he really is. Our only Savior from sin, who alone has paid the price for it, conquered the penalty of it in his death and then rising again on the third day. And those whom God has called in His grace to faith in His Son, we will persevere in that gospel truth. We will continue looking to Christ and not ourselves for assurance that we are free and have life with God. But sadly, there will be some who do not resolve to know Christ to the end, who effectively, as Paul says here, fall away from grace. Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave it there. He tells the Galatians how to get off this perilous path of self-reliance. Have a look in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Instead of striving for righteousness in our own strength, an effort that is doomed to failure, Paul encourages the Galatians, whom God has granted his Spirit, to eagerly wait For the hope of righteousness through faith, uh, depending not on anything they do, 
but depending on a hope that is outside them, that they are waiting for. It's the assurance that Christ alone can bring. That having been united to him by faith, we are splendid in God's sight. It's not a blemish of sin that he would hold against us. And one day in the future, that truth will be revealed for all to see. When Christ will present you spotless before his heavenly Father, that is what we as God's people are eagerly awaiting. Not because we're good, none of us are, but because God has clothed us in the righteousness of his Son by faith. I wonder, are you delighting in that gospel? Are you still delighting in Jesus, your righteousness? Or do you find yourself preoccupied with being tired and weighed down, obsessed with how you're performing in the here and now? You see, this problem can be so subtle for us as Christians. I I had a friend who started out well. He professed faith in Christ, and naturally he got involved in, in healthy Christian habits. Attended growth group, got onto the Sunday serving roster. He, he ended up in a position of leadership in his Christian union program back at school. And outwardly, it looked so good. But inwardly, over time, his heart was becoming more and more focused on what he was doing and less and less focused on the one he was serving. It was very subtle, though. He, he started to see his surrender to Jesus. He started to count on, on that for his assurance that he was right with God. And, and so when he was doing well, when he felt he was working well in faith, well, he had a spiritual high. He had assurance that, well, clearly then God is for me and he loves me. And yet Jesus and his cross in the meantime was becoming less and less and less important to him. For my friend, it became about his faith in and of itself. How strongly he felt for Jesus. How well he was serving Jesus. And then one day, things went terribly wrong. He slept with his girlfriend and everything fell apart. Jesus alone was no longer his security before God. For him, it was the strength of his faith in action that actually really mattered And he was sure he had blown it in his sin. In his discouragement, he stopped coming to church. He removed himself from sitting under the gospel of grace with others. I pray that not one of us here would fall into that deadly trap. You know, believing that it's our faith worked out. It's how much we are for Jesus that really counts. Rather than him himself, whom God has brought us to faith in. Because, friends, whether we are doing well or not, Jesus doesn't change. The worthiness of his blood to cleanse us of our every sin in full never changes. Don't be like my friend. Don't forsake your freedom in Christ. Remember the gospel. And if your eyes are fixed elsewhere to bring assurance, ask God to help you know afresh the love he has shown you in his Son to know deeply and joyfully just how secure you are in Him. Our works have nothing to do with it. Look in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. 
keeping rules the Jewish way, circumcision, or observing customs the pagan way, uncircumcision. They count for nothing, only faith, only trusting in what Christ has done and the glorious future we have in him. A a dynamic faith, yes. A faith that will express itself in active love, yes. But faith alone in Jesus, his righteousness, that is our only hope before God. Paul's going to come back to this love empowered by faith later, but before he does, he's got a second warning for us. Don't let anyone hinder your freedom. Don't let anyone hinder your freedom. Look in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, of course, Paul's not in the dark. Is it sitting down? Sorry. Of course, Paul's not in the dark about this, of course. He knows exactly who's hindering the Galatians from obeying the gospel, from trusting in Christ alone. These Jewish false teachers that he's identified earlier, earlier, promoting obedience to the law in the place of Christ. But the Galatians, they're blind to it. Now, up to this point, they don't see the danger. Paul wants them to wake up, to realize they've fallen for a terrible lie. He says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. If I called you over for dinner at my place one evening, I'm not saying I am right now, okay, it's just an illustration. If I called you over for dinner one evening, do you think the following morning I would then persuade, try to persuade you that you need to pay me back for it? Oh, you know, I prepared the food and the carrots cost this much and the meat cost this much. Uh, and now after I've invited you over and I've cooked the meal for you, now here's the shopping bill. Thanks. Of course not. If I have you over for dinner, it's on me. God has called us to faith in his son. It's on him, not us. Why would God ever seek to persuade us to work for our righteousness, which he alone has provided for us by the blood of his son? Well, Paul is confident that the church in Galatia will come back to their senses. They will hold fast to Christ, faith in him alone. But as for these false teachers, uh, they haven't just been persuading the Galatians to depend on circumcision. They've been telling the Galatians, actually, that's what Paul's been teaching as well. And Paul has a powerful proof to refute that lie. Have a look in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul is still being persecuted for the offense of the cross that he preached. And that's the proof that he is not promoting any kind of obedience, self-salvation, to get right with God. And friends, the cross is incredibly offensive to those who would justify themselves before God. It testifies to the fact that we can't. It took God's Son to die in our place to deal with our sin. We need a rescue from it, not a textbook on how to solve the problem ourselves. But that confronts the root of all sin, actually. Our pride. Believing we know better. Believing we can do something to make ourselves more worthy for God when He makes it clear we can't. 
And that's why Paul was being persecuted by his own Jewish people. Because in pride, they just couldn't accept that. They couldn't accept that life with God was a matter of depending entirely on his son. Don't be surprised if you are being attacked for faithfully sharing Jesus as our only hope before God. That message is offensive to the pride that we all share. Paul, actually, well, he wasn't that concerned, though, with his own sufferings. He's, he, he's putting that forward as a point to refute this lie. But you see what he's really bothered about? What he really can't stand? Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you. He's concerned about the sufferings the Galatians are enduring. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish they'd go all the way. Don't just stop at circumcision. Emasculate yourselves if that's what you're trusting in and promoting others to do the same. Paul is angry. He is like a parent full of jealous anger for his own precious children. You want to see me get angry very quickly? Go and pick on my son Josiah. Mistreat him. Bully him. There are few things that get me worked up more quickly. Friends, there are issues that are okay to be angry about as Christians. And the persuasion that we can do something to make God favor us more, and so denying that Christ alone has made us completely right before him, that is worthy of our anger. You know, I get really upset when I read statements in supposedly Christian books that go along the lines of, you will get the best job, you will have the best health, you will receive the greatest wealth, and it's just down to how much you believe God will do it for you. It's just down to how much you believe God will do it for you. Now, aside from the fact that God has not promised such things to us as people in this life. What's worse is that it encourages Christians to take their eyes off Christ, in whom we have received every spiritual blessing by faith. And instead, we believe that God is for us only as much as we are for Him. It's all about how we think we're doing in faith. And so when that job doesn't come through or we experience severe illness, we're not securing God's love for us in His Son. We're adrift. We're convinced, well, well God's clearly angry with me. I've let Him down. He's, he's no longer for me. My, my faith must have been too weak. And that causes us to fall into despair. God is for me only as much as... I'm for him in faith. It's a lie. It's an undermining of the gospel. Don't let anyone hinder your freedom in Christ. Anyone promote you to do anything in order to feel more secure before God or to be further assured of his blessing. Because Jesus alone is our security. He alone is our righteousness, not anything we do. That's the scandal of the gospel, friends. Forgiveness. Eternal life with God on the basis of faith in Christ alone, no matter who we are, 
and no matter what we've done. And many critics of the gospel have said in response, boy, if I believe that, I could live where, whichever way I want. I can just keep on living for my own desires. I can neglect God and I can neglect others. And it doesn't matter because Jesus has died for me and I'm good in God before him. He's my get out of jail free card. I'll live how I please now and I'll cash him in at the end of each day. Paul's final warning here though. Don't abuse your freedom. Don't abuse your freedom. Have a look in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's believed that Queen Victoria, is one of the most famous queens in British history, Queen Victoria, before she took the royal children out on a public visit of some kind, she would sit them down on a sofa in Buckingham Palace and say to them, Royal children, royal manners. Royal children, royal manners. Reminding them, you children, you represent the royal family, the highest in the land. Now please behave like it. Uh, It's not that their behavior would determine if they stay in the royal family. They were the royal children. It was in their blood. But because they were royalty... They were to behave appropriately in keeping with their privileged status. Friends, God has made us heirs of eternal life in his Son. Citizens of his heaven with Jesus now as our risen Savior King. That is the privileged status that is ours by faith in him. And because that is now who we are in Christ, we're to live like it. Not abuse that freedom, going back to the self-centeredness of sin, what Paul calls the flesh here, the very thing we needed saving from, but rather living to serve and love others as God has loved us, showing ourselves to be his children. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God has freed us from judgment under his law by his Son who took the full punishment for us in order that we might now use the freedom we have in him to serve as he has served. To love our neighbors as he did, which was the goal of the law in terms of how we treat others. You know, I was on a a family holiday uh, one summer. Uh, quite a few years ago. It was organized by a group called Oak Hall. You might have heard of them, especially if you're uh, from Europe. They run Christian holidays for for large groups of people. Uh, You travel overseas from the UK into mainland Europe by coach. Uh, You have free time in the day to go on excursions and wherever you're staying, enjoy a new city or or the countryside in France. Uh, And then in the evening, uh, you listen to Bible talks given by the group leader. Well, my family and I, we went on one of these trips to the south of France. But while we were on the road to our destination, uh, a call came through to the group leader. The accommodation has changed. And when we arrived at our new hotel, we realized straight away we had a problem. There was only one room left which could actually house a whole family. And the rest 
were dormitory style. Men in one and women in the other. And they were, you know, pretty, not, not so nice rooms. Problem was, there were two families on our trip. There was my family and there was the leader's family. You know, the guy who's going to be doing all the work, giving those talks in the evening while his families actually helped to prepare our meals. Of course, his family deserved the room. You know, they, they would use it a lot more than us to rest, and they would need a lot more rest because we would be enjoying our holiday while they were working so hard. And yet immediately, the leader of our trip insisted, no, 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 you, you take the family room. We'll split up and go into the dorms. It wasn't comfortable for them. Make it harder for them to do their work during their break, but they insisted and this was a family in which the father and the mother, they were older people. It would be very uncomfortable for them. But they insisted, no, you guys, you go into the family room. It was a powerful testimony that the love of Christ had been work in their hearts for many years. There's no law to say they had to give up that room, their comfort, what they deserved, what they were entitled to. But in love, they sacrificed it anyway. And as I got to know the leader on this trip in the evenings, it became clearer and clearer that Jesus was the joy of his life, his foundation, his peace, his security. He really knew the love of Christ. That's why he was so full of love for others. I wonder what about us? Are we quick to serve or to be served in our own interests? To love or to judge and despise others? You know, the solution is not to try harder, to work at loving better. If we do that, we're making the same mistakes the Galatians made. We're going back to the misery of trying to be good enough in and of ourselves. And that didn't lead them to loving others. Have a look in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is what happens when works righteousness sets in in a church. We are no longer delighting in the status God has granted us in Jesus, equally sinners, saved by his grace, who seek to love others as we have been loved. Rather, we're measuring one another by our religious performance. And when we think we're doing well, we're proud. And when we're not doing so well, we're full of despair and fearful of what others think of us. Friends, to love God and others as we should The only way is to keep on looking to Christ, who in love died to wash us clean and present us beautiful before his Father. And only as we rejoice in that certain hope, in that gospel, will our hearts be melted by the love of God and we will be free to love and serve others as we should. Friends, don't be like an odor. That Japanese soldier stuck in the jungle trying desperately to achieve a freedom already won. Don't forsake Jesus by relying on works which can only enslave. And don't let anyone hinder you from holding fast to him alone. Rejoicing in the security before God you now have in him. Because as you do, you will know the freedom with God that he alone can bring. Not so that you can abuse that freedom in sin, but so that you can be empowered to love others as you rest secure in his love and that alone. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for this clear and so important reminder in your word today that our righteousness before you, our right standing, our security, our assurance has nothing to do with what we do but is entirely on the basis of what Christ has done. Living, dying and rising again so that by faith in him we might be splendid and spotless in your sight. We thank you that for freedom Christ died to set us free. We pray that you would help us to be mindful of the ways in which we are seeking still to rely on the works of our own faith to justify ourselves before you rather than relying solely on him. Pray that you would help us to be aware and vigilant of those who promote us to agree with that lie. And rather, you would keep us mindful continually of the freedom that we have in Christ that we would truly be able to serve and love you and others as you have called us to do, having made us righteous in your Son. We ask these things in his name. Amen.